Hello and welcome, my manic mutts, to another exciting episode of Cadaver Dogs Podcast. I'm Rob Pesercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And we are Cadaver Dogs minus David B. Jacobs today. I'm stoked, actually, for this episode. It's too bad David's not here, though. How are you doing, Devin? I know. Yeah, um, I'm doing well. Yeah, David's David's not here today. Um, he has some work things and yet again, <laughs> another COVID scare for all of us. So um, I guess I'm the next one to go. Yeah, I guess so. I only got it once uh, and it sucked. So David's on his second time around. I can't believe it. Like literally in like six months. I know. It seems like every time books a job, he gets COVID. yeah for real (laughs) yeah yeah he has the worst luck with that it's awful yeah i wonder if his roommates are doing it to him you know what actually i'm not gonna (laughs) i'm not gonna i'm not gonna confirm or deny that on air (laughs) i know i know his one roommate is like the covid officer on my set so uh, he's probably taking it from us and giving it straight to david like each time just to (laughs) i see yeah, yeah, he's he's the one that is at like in direct line of fire from like all these people. Yeah, Poor yeah, thing. yeah. This dude is just shoveling handfuls of coronavirus and throwing it into his apartment every day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he's yet immune himself. I don't know. It, apparently that happens. So I did want to say I saw Pinocchio. Oh my god, I haven't seen. I'm so excited. It's really good, and along with Guillermo's other show something obscure artifacts or whatever that tales from the crypt type thing he has on netflix which is awesome did you watch that the one that you keep talking about no we talked about it the last episode and then i think before that too you're so excited about this show and i feel so bad i haven't watched it yet it's okay by the time you watch it i'll have forgotten it and need to rewatch it so because i'm really bad with remembering stuff in movies like back in the day I yeah. mean, I still remember stuff from the original of one of the movies we're going to talk about this week that I don't think were even in the movie. I just made it up. <laughs> False <laughs> And memories. I do that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this week we have some really cool stuff, but I think there was something you wanted to talk about before we get into that. Yeah, I realized I don't think I talked about this on the last episode, and I just wanted to give a shout out. So over October, we got to go to a few different um, horror film festivals. Um, well, I guess David and I got to um (laughs) rob was busy as you heard um but yeah we got to go to the the brooklyn horror festival which is always a favorite of ours um so i wanted to shout them out they they were really incredible but i also got to attend um the nightmares film festival in ohio which is like one of the coolest festivals i've ever been to personally um it's a genre fest highly recommend it the people there were amazing and very fantastic but i got to speak on this panel um about um social justice and representation in horror and it was like i got to do it with some panelists who were like the most insightful and most like amazing people in working in indie horror right now um they're, you know, these filmmakers, a lot of them from LA, but really from all over. There's they're um smaller filmmakers. They've had a couple of them had features in the in the project or in the festival and a few had shorts, but they're definitely not filmmakers that you've heard of. I just wanted to shout them out and say that like you can listen to our panel actually on the Fright Club podcast. Um, which if you look at it, it's the nightmares social progress through horror panel. But I think we had like some really fascinating discussions that I think tie into this podcast um, that's worth checking out. 
Cool. So where can we uh, find this? Is it recorded somewhere? Yeah. So the Fright Club podcast, I think it's it's a um, blog uh, and they they upload their pod, they upload their episodes onto their blog. And I think you can find them on SoundCloud. I'm not sure um, what pod apps they're on. Um, but if you look at madwolf.com, M-A-D-D wolf.com, it should be up there. And if you just search uh, Nightmares Film Festival. Yeah, we'll also be providing a link in the description of this episode. And uh, while we're at it, please follow us at Cadaver Dogs Pod on Instagram and uh, Twitter. We have a lot of cool uh, media stuff we pop on there. I posted some things from Warhammer and... Rob is kicking ass at the Instagram, you guys. Like, it's... it's If you like horror at all and don't even listen to this podcast, which I guess you're listening to it now, but like... <laughs> just it's a it's a good it's a good gram and i can say that because it's all rob's doing yeah i actually think that more people are on our instagram than listen to our podcast but it <laughs> could just be that they haven't listened to every episode because we definitely have more total views than total followers by like tenfold we have well over ten thousand views now right um i think so yeah which is really exciting thank you all for like continuing to listen to us I do also, I want to shout out, sorry, I'm full of shout outs today, but uh, yeah, while your Instagram's going off, I'm, you know, Twitter's been a little bit of a hot topic, hot button topic, of course, these days, but um, I do want to shout out the people that have like followed up with us on on Twitter to, um, especially in our last episode about, uh, or not our last episode, but our episode about um, Get Out and the Skeleton Key. Uh, thanks, thanks for reaching out to us and letting us know your thoughts about what we covered. Um, I think that was really awesome. So thank you for that. That's great. I would also like to say that Elon Musk is probably not one of our listeners. So it, since you guys probably don't like Elon, you can follow her Twitter and it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, let's get into it. So our first film is uh, actually a reboot of one of my favorite movies. Um, Devin, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Five friends visit a cabin in the woods. And we all know where this is going. Mia's friends are worried about her addiction. Mia's tried over and over again to kick her heroin habit, but nothing is working. So they decide to play cold turkey at Mia's family's old cabin in the woods. This time, though, they invite Mia's brother, David, and his girlfriend, hoping the extra push will get her to take it more seriously. The cabin hasn't been used in some time, not before Mia and David's mother passed away. Upon opening the cabin, there's an overwhelming aroma of death how fitting, and several dead cats in the basement. Someone has clearly been in this cabin and using it for probably some pretty dark shit. Over the course of the night, Mia struggles through withdrawal and goes outside to pace in the rain. Her friend Eric decides this is the right old time to check out that creepy book he found in the basement. Oh, and then read out loud the redacted name in the book that it says in big bold letters in several places not to do. Suddenly, Mia is knocked off her feet by paranormal force. And it's then that she starts to act more possessed, talking in tongues, self-mutilation, and acting out in violent ways. Her friends chalk it up to the withdrawal, but Mia swears something else is possessing her and something is in the cabin. And her friends don't really believe her until her friend Olivia becomes possessed and slices her own face open. It is gory. Okay, now something is obviously very wrong. But with the rain outside flooding the roads, it's impossible for the friends to leave. One by one, they become possessed and attack one another. Eric and David return to the creepy book to look for a solution. Found it, they must kill Mia in order to stop the curse. 
Refusing to burn his sister, David decides to bury her alive. Mia does officially die until the brilliant David brings her back to life. Success. She's no longer possessed. She's fully cured. David did it. Only now, Eric is actually possessed. And Eric continues to wreak havoc and threaten the siblings until David decides there's no other possible way to get out other than to kill him and Eric in a fiery explosion, allowing Mia to get away. Mia, now the hero of our story, has one last demon to outrun. However, the dark soul of the earth, as is classic horror lore, Mia fights off the demon and becomes our final girl, leaving the cabin behind in a bloody rainstorm. This is obviously The Evil Dead, the 2013 remake, directed by Fede Alvarez and written by Fede Alvarez and Roto Sayag... Uh-oh. Should have looked this up. Sayagate? Sayagate? Do you know how to say this? Sayagues? Uh, I, I don't have a clue. Sayagues. Um, I did not study Spanish, so I feel bad. Sayagues? Uh, Sayagues? <laughs> it's a name. Sorry, guys. I- We're so bad at this every time. <laughs> I like when Mia pulls her hand off. That was pretty wild. Yeah, that was, oh, I remember, so while re-watching this film, I, like, remember all the moments of watching this for the first time in the theater, and the moment she, pu- she pulled her hand off at the end, I was like, oh my god, oh my god, they're gonna do it, oh my god, because she grabs the, the chainsaw, and so you think mm-hmm. that she's gonna turn herself into, yeah, the Ash character, um, which I like that she, they don't do that, but, um, yeah, that was a really exciting moment that was gory as, oh, fucking hell. Actually, that ending scene has a really cool shot when she like chainsaws the main demon in the face, who seems like a pretty like useless demon. It like can't use its legs and just crawls around. It's really strong, but it just stands there and gets chainsawed in the face. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Not very effective. It actually kills nobody. Yeah. It's a random ass demon that like, yeah. Can we talk about the beeline story for a little bit? So, um, there it the movie starts with a cold open um where there is a girl who is um clearly possessed by a deadite um or is a deadite is a deadite i'm not really sure what the difference is i, I don't know I, I called them deadites but deadites i think deadites no deadites but do you become possessed by them or are you one when you become possessed i don't know i don't know but so there's a there's a girl who's possessed and um right and her family, her father burns her alive at the stake. We learn she's been possessed. She killed her mother, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this is the girl that comes back at the end. Um, it is? The, I think so, yeah. Unless it's Mia. Oh, I but thought I it was I like thought- a double of Mia. I thought it was like her doppel, kind of like her evil mirror self of like the addiction. Because like this whole movie's kind of got that addiction metaphor going on. Yeah, which we'll definitely talk about. But she's wearing different clothes than Mia, which is why I thought she was the girl from the beginning. And like hmm. we introduced her, so why not bring her back? Yeah, I don't know. I, I actually have some problems with that cold open because like I don't really think you should show all your cards in the first scene of a movie. And that's like one of the goriest scenes of the whole movie. Oh, I disagree. And they just kind of like splay it. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. And then I'm like, oh, now we got to wait and introduce all these characters and blah blah blah. Like, yeah, I, I agree with the fact that like it's I I don't think it adds anything more to the story. Um, the the story itself is is very interesting. Um, with all the friends and Mia and David, but yeah, this this didn't really add to it. But I thought the overall film was pretty gory i thought the beginning scene they do terrible cgi which is what scares me for the rest of the film 
<laughs> the CGI. Uh, yeah, it's not the goriest part of the movie. Probably the part you talked about, the glass, and she cuts her face. I can't do it. Which is just like awesome. Oh my God, Rob, I haven't covered my eyes watching a horror movie in like some time. And this time I was squealing in on the floor. I like, I couldn't oh, really? watch that scene. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. It just didn't look that real to me. Like it looked gory and cool, but it might be, I don't know. There's this problem with like newer movies with the camera work. They, they kind of, um, always over stylize it so like this movie has like that grungy saw look mm. whereas like the original just has like normal looking colors so things like look realer even if they're faker i don't it's strange to me and uh the next movie we're going to talk about does that i think in a terrible way but this one it's cool it looks like super grungy but it doesn't look like something i'd see in like real life so it's less scary to me yeah that's interesting i think it to me the the color grading of this film just felt very much um of its time. I feel like around this time in 2013, um, a lot of movies were coming out with a certain color, color gradient that was like really popular. Oh <laughs> of yeah. Like that grunginess. But I think it like, it also added a certain, and it's probably the camera being used, but it added like a glossiness. The camera is like, like added a glossy modern look whereas then they tried to like crunch it up and post and it looked fucking weird. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's weird because it's supposed to look grungy, but then all the camera movements are like too smooth. But the original was like known for like this crazy camera stuff that was not smooth at all. Yeah. I mean, the guy was literally just like had a, a cheap camera on a piece of plywood and like ran through the woods with it like I used to do in film school. I, I wasn't really in film school in college. You went to film school. Yeah, I, I, I did. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people use that. I mean, that's what made the Evil Dead, the original great, right? Was that unique camera stuff that they were able to do yeah. by just playing around yeah speaking of um like gore and stuff they they kept the vine scene in this movie it's kind of a controversial scene in the original and sam raimi himself even kind of went back and was like yeah i'm not really proud of that scene it's like an immature person scene i'm like okay but i think it's a scary scene it's scary but yeah i don't know what it has to really do also like if if we're talking if we're talking about that scene it's not really plausible i was like watching this scene besides like the the implausibleness of this scene is the fact that there's a branch that goes all the way up her but this branch is ginormous where mm. the hell does it go <laughs> like you like your vaginal canal and uterus are like not that large dude like where the fuck are you going yeah i would kind of think you'd be kind of dying at that point if that happened yeah, I think it would split like, like the shot. It like shows this long thing just like <laughs> jumping up here. And I'm like, she would split in half. Where are you going? I like how we're going to the anatomy of this. Do you happen to have like an anatomy book back there and we can like really get into like all this <laughs> stuff going on? Unfortunately not. Does that surprise you? Okay, so I, I have a kind of uh, uh, solution to this problem we have here that I think what's really happening in the scene is that's her getting possessed by her mirror self, which is the deadite. Mm. Um, which is weird because this movie has this heavy uh, drug metaphor going on. S unlike the original, like the original, we're not giving much character backstory. So it's just there are actually demons were fucked. This one, it's like, oh, it's your past decisions coming to take you over interesting, and ruin the life of everyone else. So that's why, like, is that even a branch? I thought that was just like the essence of the demon going up in her. Oh, it's all like black and weird looking because in the original it is a branch and it's gross. Everything in this movie is like very close. Yeah. And like jarring, which is weird because it's so smooth. I wish it was like shakier 
because it's like in your face and grungy and gross, but then the camera is like too smooth. I remember when it yeah. came out watching this insane rig that they had. I think it was like a spider cam rig with like on a jib that they had like flying through the woods. And I'm like, why did you guys do all that? It's, you know, it's a horror movie. Just get right in there. Yeah. And, and it's that glossy. It, it feels very studioized, um, but in a way that like, I think Fede Alvarez was able to, um, Alvarez was able to, yeah, grantify it in a way that was like acceptable to studios and mass audiences at the time, which I respect. Even due to that, like kind of like studio effect of it, it still doesn't shy away from the gore. Like if you like yes. gore, you should definitely watch this movie. It's in there with like the saws and the hostels. Yeah, it, it reminds me very much of Eli Roth, actually. And I think that's why the the mirror scene freaked me out so much because it felt very much like um, several Eli Roth scenes that uh, t- traumati- traumatized me as a child. Um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, like, as a director, is it is it like a compliment being uh, compared to Eli Roth or not? I don't. I, I, that's a good <laughs> question. Do you want to be? I think that's really ultimately, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's definitely... Um, some comparisons between this and kind of like cabin fever as yeah you know both of them like in a way are kind of remakes of the original evil dead for sure yeah and and this movie i think is a true remake uh it's almost exactly the same with a a few added things um and i guess they wanted it to reboot a franchise which didn't yeah, and I kind of wish that it did because we do see that um, cameo of Bruce Campbell at the end after the credits. You mentioned something earlier about this um, Deadite, as you saw, the the mirror version of Mia's past self. Um, and I mean, the main topic that we wanted to talk about today is how these two films that we'll be talking about discuss addiction. Um, and you were saying that this past self would be a, a memory of her how do you see that um, in terms of like her addiction? Could you go further into that? Well, I'm, I kind of feel like this movie is trying to um, use the deadites and the possession as a metaphor for the destructive power of addiction and how it affects your family and loved ones. Yeah. Because what's going on is they're taking her for a kind of like rehab with all her friends and family like around her to watch her, even though they do a terrible job of like watching her. They let her get into so much shit. Um, like that scene where the steam, that, that's pretty gross. Oh, God, yeah. There are a lot of really gross, great seats of this. I guess what they're trying to say is that like drug addiction changes who you are as a person and you're not really like who you are and you hurt everyone you love. Yeah, yeah. I think they're definitely touching upon that um, because we see, you know, one by one, her friends get affected by supposedly her and what she's done she's Mm -hmm. she's like this this main demon in the beginning um but slowly some yeah some of her friends become demons as well and if we look at this metaphor of the the demon the possession um being that of addiction like you do there tends to be um when looking at addicts they they push away friends they push Mm -hmm. away family um and to them they lose them one by one and it is interesting too to see people specifically women also becoming demons themselves. And I'm wondering if that is also a metaphor for like, maybe they also go down um, a darker path in life. Yeah, it could be. I, I'm i not quite sure if they're really going for like the guilt of hurting your family and loved ones because our main character, Mia, never seems to experience any kind of guilt. At the end, she kind of turns into this like Ash type um, 
final girl badass where she's just kicking ass and throwing out like one liners and stuff like go to hell and all that. And she rips her own arm off and she's kind of just like being cool about it. Yeah. So I think what they maybe were probably more going for was the sense of control that she had to take control of her life because she was possessed by this thing. And then she faces herself at the end and kills that thing that was taking over and like removing the control from her life. So yeah, maybe it was less a metaphor for how drug addiction is destructive to the people around you and more about how it takes away your sense of control, which I think touches base with the primordial fear of like possession as a whole because you lose sense of who you are. Yeah, I agree with the losing sense of who you are. That's really interesting. And and um I think I think you're right in like the way that this film is set up. I it explores mm, less so of like the personal destruction of um a person who is suffering from addiction. And I think a lot of that has to do with the the point of view that they chose in the film. I think this film actually has two main characters and they alternate point of views um obviously david does die at the end and then we turn into mia's point of view but in the beginning we're with david and david is not someone who's suffering from addiction david is watching his sister go through addiction so yeah i agree that it, it it's less about like the experience of the addict and could be more so from from the family and friends and in the sense if if you um here with me and stick stick around for a little bit um me and david's mother passed away and she was really sick and um we learned that david wasn't there to take care of her and that mia ended up taking care of her mother and watching her pass away and so obviously is dealing with this this trauma but david seems to um we learn that David kind of feels guilty about that, um, that he like left his sister to deal with this and now is, is seeing the consequences of his own actions that she has a darkness inside of her that she's trying to keep away with drugs and obviously now is suffering from, from a drug addiction as well. And so I think it's an interesting point of view from David, um, to see that his consequences are Mia. Does that make sense? Like, at first, it sounded like you said me and David's mother, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a lot of that backstory stuff is really easy to mix because they, the characters just kind of mention it in like one scene, and then it never comes back again. Oh, no. No? It does come back again? Well, I thought they that was the, the whole... David's whole motivation was he's there because he feels guilty that Mia's like this, and he p- blames himself for it. And the whole reason like, yeah. why he has to be the one to save Mia... And also kill her, um, or save her by killing her. That because that's the only way that he can like come to realization with his guilt and like, yeah, get over it. But what I was saying is like the mother part is just kind of mentioned, I think, one time. And there aren't any like flashbacks or anything to kind of give us a real sense of that. We do have his friend Eric constantly berating him and telling him, like, man, you left me in, blah, blah, blah. And I I, I get this weird, like, disjointed sense of, like, why are you such good friends with his sister? Are they the same age? Are they twins? What's going on here? It's there, There's some stuff I don't really understand about all that, which is weird. It would have made a lot more sense if Eric was, like, her boyfriend, and then they asked David to come. The other ones were, like, her friends. I think... But, I mean, I guess she's just friends with the both of them? Yeah, it's just, it's just family friends. I mean, I have friends that, like, my sister's been friends with, and, yeah, we're we're all close. Yeah. Like, it makes sense to me, and especially if you're coming from a smaller, uh, more well-knit family. I think it adds to the – it adds to the um, the intensity of, like, how bad David will feel just – and how 
how much of a big deal it was that he just up and left when he obviously was very close with everybody. I mean, how long ago did he leave? Like, it seems like it's been years. Yeah, I think it's been years. And I mean, I guess he left and like went to college or something. I don't, yeah. I don't really know. Um, yeah, we don't get the full details, but I think all we really need to know is like he he chose to leave, and so it's it's really it again. I think it's an interesting point of view from his side to like show how what it's like dealing with someone close to you who who is an addict, and I think also really important for for this genre and for this story in particular because from his point of view we get to see the possession and that is what makes it really scary um they do have that doubt of like oh well maybe she's not possessed maybe this is just withdrawal which is kind of neat but it also seems strange that we get such a mix of each character because it really feels like david's the main character and then he just gets he just gets murdered, and then Mia becomes the final girl hero. After yeah. you could arguably blame her for all of this, although it's probably more Eric's fault for reading the book. But all he did was he has glasses, <laughs> so he needs to read books. Oh my god, fucking Eric is like why he needs to read books because he has glasses. Okay, obviously, but, but but oh my god, this fucking I'm dude. just saying like that's his character. He has glasses, long hair. He needs to read the book. It's, I, I just want to point out there. that that Rob is saying this as he's wearing glasses, everybody. So it's I just, am. If I was that guy, like if I was written as that character, it would be like, wears glasses, read books. That That's his characterization. He needs to do that. I didn't think he was super nerdy. No. And his girlfriend is there. I don't know anything about her. Oh, my God. Okay. I looked at it. His girlfriend, Natalie, David's girlfriend, Natalie, does not say a word until 34 minutes into the movie hold on hold on hold on i wrote down what she says and it's the stupidest fucking thing ever and i hate this so much oh she says something oh it's 36 minutes into the movie she says something and then immediately david goes calm down (laughs) and she she doesn't yell it's literally the first words that she says and he's like whoa 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 you're talking i need you to calm down (laughs) i need you to not be hysterical right now that's the movie, yeah. And uh, Olivia's character is that she's a nurse, and she thinks this is a good idea. That's it. That's all they we get. They do her. her dirty. The fact that they set up her character with like a oh, and you're a doctor. She's like no nurse, and they're like yeah, she didn't finish medical school. Like it's a slight that she's not a doctor. Nurses are <laughs> a really big deal. Like it's not a slight that she's a nurse and not a doctor. Like that's really offensive. <laughs> I know my wife's a nurse, and like. They get paid pretty good. It's yeah, not, and they do a lot. Like your a, wife, it's a hard like job. yeah, she deals with those patients like personally. I know those patients are almost as difficult as me. It's like <laughs> it's crazy. I think from here we're actually kind of geared to jump in the similarities between this movie and the other movie. So it might be prudent to kind of get into the next movie and then circle back to this addiction scenario that we want to compare the two. So why don't you take us into the second film then? Roland Voigt, a billionaire playboy with an interest in sex parties and demons, hasn't been seen in years. His lawyer, Serena, hides a mysterious, well, not that mysterious if you've seen the other 10 movies, puzzle box in a shipping container. Six years later, recovering addict Riley, living with her supportive brother Matt and roommates, decides to rob said shipping container with her sketchy boyfriend Trevor. When they only recover a puzzle box instead of bonds or riches, the defeated couple leave and Riley heads back to their apartment drunk. Matt doesn't like drunk Riley and in a heated argument, kicks her out of the apartment. 
Riley pops some pills in a playground outside while playing with a puzzle box. The spring knife doesn't pierce her this time. I failed to mention that in the first scene of the movie, Roiland Voigt gives a kid the puzzle box, he gets stuck with it, and like, Cenobite chains kill him because he wants to commune with the demons. I guess that's important. So anyway, while in a drunken stupor, the Cenobites, who are demons to some and angels to no one in this version, appear. Matt comes outside looking for his sister and accidentally cuts himself on the puzzle box. That's when Pinhead Queen presents herself and takes him in the restroom. Riley convinces Trevor to hunt down Roland Voigt, the missing owner of the shipping crate, and in the process confronts the terminally ill Serena in a hospital. Serena tells him to forget her brother and get rid of the box when she is cut by the puzzle box. The couple leaves and Serena comes face to face with some more Xenobites. One has a human skin hood thing that looks like a rain hat. That's cool. She's taken. Or killed. I'm not sure which, and the movie doesn't explain, but the Cenobites talk of their victims in the past tense, but they're probably still in hell. This is where Riley convinces the rest of her roommates to Scooby-Doo this shit, and they go to Voight's abandoned mansion. Inside Voight's mansion, she finds out that the puzzle box has various configurations depicting the gift of the Cenobite's god, Leviathan. She wants to unlock the resurrection configuration and save her brother. Unfortunately, Nora, another one of the roommates, gets cut by the box and they discover someone living in the house. Nora gets killed by one of the Cenobites, who stick a needle through her neck in this like internal glory channeling, like an early 2000s CGI effect, and Riley considers ending their pursuit against hell demons, but she doesn't. Riley then gets cut with the box, and instead of killing Trevor as a replacement, she stabs one of the Cenobites. Pinhead chain kills the Cenobite. Voight reveals his plan to Riley, Colin, and Trevor. Colin is with the other roommate, and it turns out that Trevor was working for Voight the entire time. Voight wants a new gift from the Cenobites since Sensation, or, lum or Liminal, Luminal? Liminal, I think, in Cenobite lingo, is having your nerve endings wound up in a weird harp thing that's stuck through your ab abdomen and hurts a lot. Doesn't seem like it ever feels good either. Void hopes to trap the Cenobites in a strangely configured trap house and get the harp removed. Riley stabs Trevor instead, saving Colin from the Cenobites. And the Cenobites, instead of dragging her to hell, decide to leave her with despair, which seems like a pretty good way to get off. Voight, on the other hand, exchanges his gift for another and ascends to the hellscape where his skin is bleached paper white and his cheeks are ripped and stretched. Ew. He becomes a Cenobite and is given power. Hellraiser 2022 is directed by David Bruckner and based on the original movie and novella by Clive Barker. Okay, so obviously you and I are huge fans of the original Hellraiser, um, but I want to put that aside for as long as we can and try to to look at this for what it is without comparing it to the original. Um, so clearly this is also another a, um, metaphor for addiction, whereas you saw the last one was not being so much from the point of view of Mia in terms of like how she pushes her friends away and and how we we've already talked about how we struggle with that what do you think is the point of view of of this film and how it tackles addiction well i, I don't think this movie has any kind of like main character problem uh riley is definitely the main character she gets a whole lot of close-ups uh she cries a lot too i think the main point of this movie which the cenobites kind of spell out at the end with her like torment is how her addiction is so traumatic and destructive that it ruins all her relationships and puts all other people through hell as well, that she's being selfish with it. And now she has to live with that selfish uh, mentality. So whereas evil dead was kind of dealing with the taking control of yourself, this one is dealing with the consequences of what you've caused. 
Yeah. And in this one, it literally makes everyone else go to hell. Yeah, that part is really interesting that a lot of people do suffer in order for her to mm-hmm. to get away at the end. Although it doesn't, like you said in, in the summary, she doesn't necessarily get away with a happy life. In fact, in the end, um, yes, she, she chose a life of despair, which the Cenobites then correct her and say, um, so you've chosen lament, which is one of the six choices that you can. Mm-hmm. To me, that says that like once you choose to go down this path once um and not like you you do choose but once um you know you become addicted um this is there is no there is no happy ending right like you have to you have to have one of these six um results at the end of it i also don't think she becomes clean afterwards i think uh Mm. she has to deal with her suffering and there's a good chance she's gonna slip back into her addiction maybe worse than before we don't know. That's what's hinted at. It, it isn't explained. That's interesting because we do see, I mean, through Roland's character, Roland obviously went through this, um, went all the way to the, the sixth configuration and asked for a gift and then ends up doing it again because he didn't like his gift. So I would be curious to see if Riley does come back and ask for something else because they say you'll, you're you going to regret your decision. But I think the, the moral of the story is that you're going to regret it no matter what. And there's nothing you can do to, to get a better life after it. Yeah. And uh, unlike Roland, she's not given eternal life with eternal pain at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of too bad. I, I, I mentioned it in my little intro, which I, I kind of wish I spent more time writing. But uh, these Cenobites are demons to some, but angels to who exactly? Because it doesn't seem like anything they ever do feels good in this version of the film. So like his uh, luminal, I think it's called, which is like sensation, mm-hmm. only hurts. You'd think that he would be like given like the most extreme orgasms along with the most extreme pain, but that's just not included in this. So I don't really understand how his suffering correlates to the other theme of the movie, which is like addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, do, do you think that works? Like maybe there's something I'm missing. I don't know how any other torments integrate in with the addiction sphere of like maybe it's like looking for higher highs and that's what like drugs do yeah i think i think to me that's that's what i got out of it is that you know um we're always looking for more for more and more and more and um my my favorite line in this film is uh when when riley's at the end and she she talks to pinhead and she chooses um not to not to choose essentially and she says i've done enough and Pinhead says, enough is a myth. Yeah, that was cool. And I, I think that's, yeah. It, it, and I think that's really it is like, you're always going to want something more and you're always going to look for something more. And I, I think actually with, with what you were saying, I do have theories on what the six gifts are in terms of relation to, to addiction and, and an addicted life. I mean, I think that would make sense. The only problem is like, I don't see any high highs from the Cenobites. It just seems like it's like lowest lows. There's no roller coaster, right? Because typically you'd be get like the most extreme pleasure along with the most extreme pain. But it seems like you're only given the most extreme pain. So like in terms of like music, you'd be hearing like the best symphony with like the worst uh, nails on chalkboard or the highest high with the worst come down. And I don't know. That's just kind of missing. They only promise sensation. They don't say a good sensation. And and something else I found really interesting that 
that changed my my view of what this film is talking about um, upon my second viewing was the scene where um, uh, the scene where Pinhead is talking to Nora. I think it's Nora, the uh, the roommate. Yeah, yeah, the one with the needle through the neck. Yeah, Pinhead asks her, "What is it that you pray for?" And she says, "Salvation." And Pinhead says, "What would it feel like a joyful note without change? Heaven, there is no music in that." And it it kind of brought about this idea for me that you know life could be boring if it's always blissful. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting in the fact that maybe the Cenobites think that you know this is how you live. You life needs pain. Life needs these things that are not necessarily easy to deal with, but give it, give it meaning, give it worth. I, I think you're right. Um, I, I just think, unfortunately, the movie only gives us one version of that. I know we said we weren't compared to the originals, but in the originals that that was very apparent was that you would, you would have the worst time followed by the greatest time imaginable. And it would just alternate back and forth. Yeah. We don't see, we don't see the highs that she get um, because we see, all we see here, this is just, this is a really fucking depressing movie. There are, there are no highlights of this movie. There's no small comedic moments. There's no like small lovey dovey romance. Like Trevor's a terrible person. Like we don't, we don't get those. We don't get the highs in this movie at all. It's almost like it's trying to say that what you shouldn't waste your time trying to help people who are lost. Cause they'll drag you down. <laughs> I mean, in a little <laughs> bit of a way, uh, I, I don't think it's really saying that, but there is kind of like no silver lining, like no like uh, family's important or anything like that. It, it seems like it's mostly just about how your selfishness can really affect everyone around you. Roland Void is just is more selfish than Riley, but we're also seeing that Riley's extremely selfish too. Like if she just kind of like let her brother go, and then she wouldn't have gotten everyone else uh, sucked into hell or killed or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree, and I think that's what I was getting at when I was like, um, "You have no other choice." but to choose one of these six because no matter mm-hmm. what, yeah, this is, it's a depressing fucking film. <laughs> it is. But yeah, you said something really interesting and I'm wondering uh, if you could elaborate on what, what do you think those six different things mean in terms of addiction? Oh yeah. Let's go through those. So the six um, stages, uh, when you reach the final configuration of the box, um, you're offered one of, of six powers and there, there is lament, which is life, lore, which is knowledge, laundering, which is love, lumal sensation, Lazarus resurrection and Leviathan is power. Um, so we see lament life with, with Riley at the end. We see sensation Lumel with Roland and we also see um, Roland achieve Leviathan, which is power. So we have this, this knowledge is one of them, um, which I believe we see the Cenobites talking about is like just the knowledge of other things that are out there necessarily which i think a lot of people feel like they they reach when they take drugs they reach another plane they reach um they see you know different timelines in the world and i think that can always be destructive um if you have more knowledge you know you're not necessarily reaching ignorance is bliss here we talk about love a lot more in the originals being sex um and and resurrection yeah i mean we see a little bit of it too but like maybe bringing back someone that that you love that isn't necessarily them, but a version of them that you want or envision. I would argue it seems like it's ripe for a sequel. Um, Whether or not you think that's fortunate Uh, because we only get to see half the box uh, outcomes. So like we still have knowledge. uh, 
resurrection and love to go through. Um, I would assume that it's going to be something like, I think this happened in an old Batman cartoon where a guy made a deal with the devil and he's like, you offered me infinite knowledge. And the devil's like, all knowledge is pain. And he just touches his head and the guy yeah. just like suffers. So yeah. I think something like that would happen. That's kind of what I envisioned too. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm, they would probably twist the love to be like some sort of unrequited thing uh, or like brokenheartedness, you know, like the flip side of love. And then uh, resurrection, I mean, I, I don't know, would you turn to a zombie maybe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah, it's all it's all, all things that are like not as they seem. Yeah, it's all monkey's paw kind of. I, You know what? Yeah, you said monkey's paw and I was about to say pet cemetery. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, another monkey's paw film. I know we want to get into comparisons, uh, but something I also, I just wanted to point out that I saw in this version that I liked Serena's character is really interesting um, because she clearly knows what's happening and helps out Roland reach reach this ultimate power, but then she doesn't necessarily seem like she gets anything in return. Well, she was his lawyer, so I assume she's getting mm-hmm. paid a lot. I'm sure. I don't know if she was a hundred percent aware of like the demons. I thought. I think it seemed like he was a super centered guy. And then maybe when he disappeared, I don't know if she knew that he had the weird harp thing in his chest. That's when she's like, all right, I'm going to go hide the box in this. Well, I don't know. Was she helping him at that point? Because he'd been getting, uh, I think, uh, isn't Riley like one of the latest victims of this thing? Or has he been getting victims this whole time? Well, no. Yeah, it's weird. And this was a question that I actually wrote down in my notes. Why is it important that that we're six years later now? Because um, the beginning, yeah, the beginning parts that we see happened six years ago. They lock the box up and Roland has supposedly been in that mansion in hiding in its walls in pain for six years. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking bizarro land, really. Um, I thought Trevor had already gotten him other victims. I thought that was the point. But he hadn't. Is it Riley the only one? Yeah. Because we we see the box at the first configuration. So... Uh. Um, if he was having other victims, then we, it would have to be further along in, in the, um, I guess the you're configurations. Right. And then if he had reached the end where it would reset to the first one, then he would have received a different power. Yeah. I also kind of like, uh, Roland's house. It's sort of like the house in 13 ghosts, right? He kind of created it. Yeah. He's like this eccentric billionaire. So he built that before. That's that's where I was confused. Yeah, because I was like, he has the box. Okay, when, when we discover the house and go through um, in the beginning, when we see that the house is designed around this box, like literally looks like it has all those gates designed so that people can't leave and the Cenobites, blah, blah, blah. The the box is like on the fifth configuration, right? Um, so yeah, I wonder at what point he started building and how long it took for him to reach six configurations. And yeah, did he build the house before he had the box or during while he had the box i think he built he built the house to utilize the box the best way yeah um he might have made modifications afterwards because remember he's like a billionaire but in the beginning when he kills that kid joey uh they were like a trapdoor and stuff so it definitely was somewhere along that path at that point to be this kind of uh lamont house yeah it's fucking crazy i loved it though it was really cool i think uh one of the things i want to talk about when like comparing these films though is that both are reboots of franchises right uh one's more of a remake uh the other one more of like a reboot and but they take like very different themes 
I think, than the originals. Mm -hmm. And and to me, I I was wondering how you feel about reboots in general and what exactly you expect from them considering. And if maybe these two franchises, uh, you have different expectations from a remake or reboot. I personally, I like reboots. I think. Okay. um, And it depends on the story like Evil Dead and Hellraiser, the world that they've created in the originals, are it, it's just so vast and exciting that so many different things can happen within it. So I like the idea of taking the themes and the world from the originals and bringing them into a modern storytelling or something that, that can resonate more with modern audiences. Now, that's not necessarily what we see all the time, but I like it when it's done successfully in that sense. Um, and it's also fun for fans. I mean, like looking back at the reboots that we get, like, yeah, they're not all great, but how awesome is it that, you know, us who didn't get to go see Halloween in the movie theater, get to go fucking see Halloween in the movie theater with a big group of people, like all who are Halloween fans, you know, like those kinds of experiences I love. And I think it's, it's that for me, why I'm, I'm, I'm into the reboots by your face. I'm seeing, yeah, I'm wondering, <laughs> Well, no, I, I kind of like how you mentioned the Halloween remake reboot because I actually like it. I know a lot of people hate it, but I'm not nearly as much of a diehard fan of the original as I think the people who hate the movie. Um, and I think that's a good example of they didn't really change any of the themes. They just kind of expanded on the story's lore, which is interesting because then you get like a lot of the stuff of the original, which I mean, I'd argue that one might not have as much suspense as the old one. And that's why it might not be as good. But you get more of the lore of the character, which it's interesting. It's always fun to expand on that. And since it's a reboot, it doesn't necessarily change the original. Now, in this instance, I think Evil Dead is superior to Hellraiser because the original Evil Dead doesn't, I don't think, have a very strong thematic core, if there really is one at all. So by implementing one in, you can kind of change it without detracting from what the movie's supposed to do and what you expect, which in my case was I wanted people to be possessed and for it to be kind of gory. Now, it wasn't funny, which I think was a big part of the originals. But Hellraiser, I think the originals and the book had an extremely strong thematic core about sensation and sex and kind of like kink culture. And that's just not here at all. So I kind of think it's the wrong movie for this addiction subplot to be implemented in. See, I and I think there I I disagree. And the Hellraiser reboot is interesting for this this reason, because it it is weird that there is not sex in or as much sex in this film but upon rewatching it and and seeing more about what they're talking about in terms mm-hmm. of sensation and um how to live a life of of your choosing with pain i think but it 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 does fit into the themes more and they might they did rewrite you know a little bit of the lore which i'm not necessarily happy with but the mm-hmm. fact that like there are six sides. Can addiction not be one of the sides and lust and and sex be another, you know? And I think like it's two sides of the same coin and I kind of like that they expanded upon it in that way. Right. And now I, I think there was a way to use like addiction for, through it, but they don't go into any of the pleasures of addiction and it doesn't seem like the Cenobites like offer that. So to yeah. me, it kind of it kind of feels like they changed the lore of what Cenobites are. Because originally, like, yes, they're demons, but supposedly there are those who are not going to think it's over the top and that's or it is over the top, but that there is something to gain out of that. This movie completely missed that. Yeah. And I, and I also think like 
I mean, I get that, like, you know, drug use is a way of doing it. I just think that kink culture and BDSM and stuff is like so much more extreme than doing drugs for most people. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean so much more extreme? Like most people experiment with drugs, right? And it's like, oh, it's weird. Yeah, no, most people drink alcohol and they take uh, pharmaceuticals. Like most people in some point, like experiment with drugs, it seems to be more like socially uh, accepted and whatnot. Like kink culture is usually very niche and there's multiple sub niches within it. And uh, a lot of the time it's, doing something that most people would never want to do. Well, hold on, because I mean, you're saying you're saying most people have experimented with drugs and then count alcohol towards that. I would argue that like if people were to experiment with kink and there's different levels, like there's some small kink things that like I'm sure most people have experienced. Yeah, but I'm talking about the extremer ones. Well, then I think you have to talk about drugs in the same way. I don't think that you can say that BDSM is more and kink is more extreme when there's definitely extreme parts of, of drug culture as well. Oh, there definitely are extreme parts, but um, it's harder to show on screen. This movie doesn't show any of them. Like she's supposedly an addict, but we never even get the sense that she's that extreme of an addict. We know that she likes to get really fucked up, but we don't see her ever like putting herself in extreme danger. Like when she gets kicked out of the house and she's really upset and she falls asleep in a park like that, that's pretty shady, but she's not like in like crack houses or doing any crazy shit. It's like super tame. The story's not at her at her lowest low, which I find more interesting. It's it's her at a struggling point of trying to to overcome this addiction, not like being in the middle of her addiction. Well, I kind of feel like if we're going to do a movie about the uh, pinnacles of sensation, we should start showing some of it. Because that's kind of what like Hellraiser's core is. It's like about taking certain things like or like an area of life that you might never experience and kind of presenting it to you in this like strange media form. Yeah. And then it it adds it, it turns it in kind of a negative because it is a horror movie, but it's also kind of an introduction to like a different lifestyle choice. And uh, by presenting it as like a kink culture. It's something that you might think is horrifying, but other people might like. If you present it as like a drug culture, there's really no positive end to like drug addiction. So I understand where it's coming from, but it also, I don't, the, the heaven, the, the angels of some, devils to other, it's just not there. And I, that really bothers me because I thought that was extremely unique to the franchise. But like there are other franchises that really serve themselves well by switching up the themes. Um, another good example that I really enjoyed was the reboot of Wrong Turn that came out a year or two ago. Have you seen that one? I ha- I haven't seen it, no. I know it was really good, but I, I yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I, I, it just felt like it was the same type of movie. I, I don't know. It felt like it worked. I, I agree with the overall sentiment of what you're saying, that like where this, where the Hellraiser remake reboot fall, falls is in that loss of of yeah sensation and like the thing that made the original so great was that yeah there are people out there actively seeking the cenobites um and yes we see roland do that but yeah you're right we don't we don't necessarily understand his character besides like the evil of like him wanting power which is why i love the original frank so much because frank is like such a like and julia too they're such they're multi-dimensional characters you know and and you really see julia's sexual awakening throughout that film we don't see any sort of like sexual uh drug awakening power awakening in this film so i i yeah i totally agree with you in that sense 
um, that if you're going to do a reboot, it has to it has to have some of the same themes of, of the original. And I think for me, the other place that where Hellraiser falls is, and you said this in your summary as well, and this is something that we talked about actually months ago when we first saw this film. But um, yeah, the the this reboot is a mystery film. It's not. It's not like it's not like the original. The original isn't a mystery. We're with we're with her like uncovering what is this box and who has it and where did it come from? And it like to me doesn't make the film as fun. And that and, and like it it changes the structure into a way that I think is not a true reboot. And it's also the 11th movie in the franchise. Like we fucking know where the box is from. <laughs> Yeah, it's who are you making this this movie for, which is always different when looking at reboots. And I think is is ultimately what differs a reboot from a remake, from a whatever everything else is now. Yeah, it's like, are these for fans or are these for newcomers? Or are they for both? And they can be, but then, yeah, let's not over-explain some things. I mean, that's fair. It, it is supposed to be a reboot that, like, denies all the original films yeah. altogether, actually. Uh you know, so it's like, all right, let's retread some of the same ground, but turning into a full fridge mystery of like all the fans of the franchise already know. So you're alienating all of us. It's only for newcomers. And it's making boring, a boring storyline. Like, let's just let's let's get to what we're here for, which is the Cenobites. <laughs> let's be real. To talk about Evil Dead a little bit now, like, I think that's something that it does well, this reboot, is that it stays very true to the original in terms of like they're friends in a cabin and shit happens, but they just change the characters a little bit and they change the reason why they're there, which I think makes it stronger. Yeah, I I do think it works. I think there's some problems with the movie, but overall, uh, it's very faithful to the original, like almost too faithful, you could argue. But that's why I think it is a mm, remake. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that one feels a little more remakey. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's a it's th- they make the house look so similar to the original, which is crazy. Was it the same house? I don't know. I don't know. I should have looked that up beforehand. But it, yeah, it looks it looks so similar. I'm like, uh, interesting. So yeah, I think in that sense, it has to be a remake. Otherwise, yeah, we wouldn't know the lore of the house. One thing that does bother me with this reboot, and trying to remember that it's it's 2013 too. Um, yeah, the female characters thing. It, it it bothered me so much to just like, hey, it's 2013. Um, a lot has been talked about. You know, just uh how women are portrayed in movies and uh, how women are portrayed in the world. And yet this evil dead remake still treats them terribly. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of hurtful. Again, the girlfriend doesn't speak until 36 minutes into the film, which is fucking crazy. And we, again, I mean, yes, Eric does eventually become possessed, but again, it's just affecting women for seemingly no reason. And if we start looking at like, why is it just affecting women? You know, is it, saying that because we're the weaker sex and like we're more susceptible to being pulled in to this to this addiction to this other world like what is it saying when it when it's showing only female characters being possessed yeah i don't know because um it's interesting you say that the the original evil dead had like ash as like the hero right which was kind of a flip on the genre because most slashers have a final girl right and this one you had a final guy and like at the time people were like wow that's kind of weird that's cool so it, it would be really funny to be like, come up with a slasher and be like, look, the girl's the main character. It's like, yeah, like all of them. Yeah, I don't know. I think part of the problem with the female characters in The Evil Dead is none of the characters are very good. 
like well-rounded or interesting. Uh, I mean, I guess David would be the most well-rounded. Uh, his friend Eric, oh, like I said, he has glasses, so he reads. I don't know anything else about him. The girlfriend, she's she's got nothing going on. Um, she's good with a nail gun. Absolutely no character development whatsoever. We know nothing about her. It's fucking ridiculous. And it's like, you know what? It's 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 2013. We can start we can start changing these things. Right? Or like, come on. I've seen other movies from this era that are are more feminist than this film. Let's if we're going to reboot something, mm-hmm. let's please reboot it with modern sensibilities. This is ridiculous. The Hellraiser franchise is kind of known for its female characters, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which I like. Um, this one, why they? Um, I, I like that they made the female character the main character, and I, I actually like that they cast a woman as Pinhead. Um, and this is something that is like widely talked about, you know. But um, I think because casting Pinhead as a woman, it does add this androgyny to the Cenobites, which I appreciate. Well, you know, Pinhead was a woman in the book. So, and, and even in the first movie, Pinhead was not the main Cenobite. It was the woman. She had like a, yeah. a viage for a neck yeah, kind of thing, if you remember. Uh, it's just everyone liked the uh, costume of Pinhead, I think, so much. He became the main Cenobite in the second movie. And, the, and like went on because it was just such an iconic outfit and everything. And whenever you really talk about Hellraiser, people always remember the Chatterer and Pinhead. Mm-hmm. Like those kind of are the two. I mean, I thought she was serviceable as Pinhead. I don't know why critics thought she was like amazing. But I mean, that's just me with the whole movie. I didn't like Riley at all. I don't. I hated her character, actually. I didn't think she was... I, she was annoying to me. All the characters were annoying. They all just screamed the whole time, screamed and cried and carried on. They made dumb decisions. And I love Odessa. Um, she's she's really fantastic. Do you? I didn't get anything out of her in this movie. Well, I, d- I do want to close it out because we were talking about these films um, in, in terms of addiction. And I think there's a, there's a lot more here to discuss that we're not going to get through um, today. But one of the main points that I wanted to hit um, because the point of the podcast is always is like, how, how does culture affect the films? And so when looking at um, evil dad, which was made in 2013 um, you know, that was the height of the opioid, the opioid crisis. Um, 2010 saw the most deaths of heroin um, for heroin users, like or the highest peak in a, in a while. I think it started growing more so after that, but that was like when it really started to become on people's radar. So we can very clearly see the influence for, for this film. Um, and it, it is really fascinating that, you know, Hellraiser, which came out 2022, um, where we're seeing the, the repercussions of, um, of the companies that, that started fentanyl, um, addiction or that like really pushed fentanyl addiction. Um, so it's, it's fascinating that you chose to compare these two. Cause I think we kind of see like how people were reacting in terms of addiction at the height of, of, of deaths versus now where we're seeing like more awareness of it and more kind of empathy, um, towards addicts. Cause we can now better understand that, um, there's more to blame out there. Yeah. That, that is an interesting point. Um, how to respond to that. It is really interesting that, um, evil dead was playing off the fear of drug use at the time. I didn't realize that was the height of drug use. It makes sense. I know my hometown suffered from it a lot, New Jersey, and like my cousin's hometown was like destroyed. Yeah, oddly same. You know? 
Heroin hives yeah, and lacy. Well, Southern California was uh, incredibly bad with heroin use. I kind of wish they would do a movie that does a better job of dealing yeah. with like the fears of drug use because I don't really feel like either of those like tap into that super well. Um, like Evil Dead, I almost feel like it's kind of tacked on. I, it doesn't hurt the movie. Yeah. No, it doesn't hurt the movie. But yeah, I agree. I definitely want to. I, I definitely want to see more films that I think tackle this more more head on. Um, and in that way, actually, if I can uh, put a request out there for anyone listening, um, send us send us some more movies that you think fall under this this umbrella of horror films talking about addiction and drug use. Because um, yeah, I'm interested in in going down that that road. We didn't seem to to find too many um, during our initial search of wanting to compare some things, but we did think that these two. Um, were a really good comparison for the reboot value. Okay, so now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is the review section. This is where we rate each film on a one through four bone rating system. Starting us off is Devin Shepard with uh, Evil Dead. Evil Dead. So overall, uh, this I have a lot of problems with this movie. I think we touched on a lot of them uh, throughout our, our episode today. Um, yeah, I don't, (laughs) the female characters were a huge problem for me. Um, let's also mention the fact that we're yet again, seeing the first black character, uh, die, be the first one to die. So there's that we're dealing with a lot of like tropes here that should have been more nuanced by this time, but alas, here we are. As we said, the characters, uh, are not well developed. However, I am in love with the setting of this film. I think the plot is, a fantastic way to, to start out a reboot. The fact that they were like, let's go to a cabin, let's have um, an addict be going through withdrawal and this be the reason that they're here. I think it solves so many issues of like, well, why didn't they leave? Why don't they believe her? And and it, I, I just think it, it's, it's such a great setting. So for that, I, I really appreciate the writing. Um, and then I'm a huge fan of Fede Alvarez. So I think you know, he does do a good job for what it's worth in terms of his direction. It It's a very 2013 film, really. We, we, we talked about it. It's very glossy, but I do do appreciate a lot of the choices that he make that he made, um, especially with the gore. Um, that was really fun. And I think it doesn't fall too much into the trap of looking too CGI. Only in the beginning scene was I put off by the CGI. It is grotesque. Um, I did cringe, as I said, so that I appreciated and I mean, come on, there's nothing as good as that blood rain. That that scene was just so fucking epic and so awesome to see to see uh Jane Levy wearing a dress in running from a deadite in blood rain with a chainsaw. I mean, come on. It was dope. Um so overall I'm gonna give this a a two point five bone raining wow that's a solid review and you know i 100 agree this movie has like such great moments of just like iconic gore um when she's cutting herself in the face she's shooting the people with the nail gun he has to pull the nails out that is fucking cool and then the ending with the chainsaw there's a lot of great shots and a lot of like technical know-how in here that i think really awesome and added to like the whole spectacle of everything but i almost feel like they played it too straight though i i kind of like the silliness of the original but not only is it not as silly, it's not as scary. Like, I don't think this movie's very scary. It's a lot of like, ew, but not a lot of like, ah. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Uh, I'm going to give it two bones. I think it's, if you want to see something gory, definitely check it out. There's some really cool parts, but it, it's not very scary. Uh, I do, I do like the setup of, hey, let's go to rehab in the haunted house. Yeah, two bones. So let's hear from David. 
Hi all, David here. I mean, I've been here the whole time, obviously. I'm just unusually quiet this month. Happy New Year, by the way. Evil Dead 2013, the movie that inspired Resident Evil 7. If you haven't played that, they have a character who looks exactly like Mia from Evil Dead and is locked in a cabin in the woods where she becomes possessed by some evil thing that makes her ruthlessly and violently attack you. Not a spoiler, it's like the first uh, thir 30 minutes of the game. And that character's name, it, it's... Yeah, they they didn't even they didn't change the name. It's they they were not at all subtle. It's it's they they literally just took the character of Mia and put her in the game. It's an excellent game. If they ever wanted to do a movie of that one, they could they could legit just follow the plot beat for beat. It would work really well. They should do this. It would be great. Um, Evil Dead twenty thirteen. Uh, this movie is really great. Gore. Two bones. It was fine. That's it. That that's the review. I, I don't have a lot to say. I, I just think it would have been cooler with a merman. Wow, David. Here, here are different options for a response since I didn't listen to him. <laughs> David, that was such a short and sweet review. Um, I'm surprised we both agree so much. So that was David coming from the shadow realm <laughs> to send us his voice recording from the COVID pits. Thanks, David. So now in the real world of uh, Zencaster, uh, Devin, what do you think of Hellraiser? All right, so so Hellraiser, I'm so happy that I rewatched it because I think my first time around, I had issues with it, and this time around, I saw I saw more in it that made me like it a lot more. I think it's a beautiful movie. It looks incredible. I love Odessa; she's one of my favorite um, breakout actors. I I love the characters in this film. I think unlike Evil Dead, this one does does very well at character development, um, especially for her. Um, I like the twists and turns, but ultimately where it falls for me is, is it becomes too, too much of a drama and too much of a mystery. And it, it, you know, you can't help but to compare this to the original. And so I feel like with that, it just loses so much value for me. Um, if this was a movie that was nowhere in the Hellraiser world and they just decided to, to make a horror movie with the same plot, but different, um, different demons, I'd be like, hell yeah, I love this film. But I think because it's in the Hellraiser world, it, it, it takes away a lot because I'm just going to compare it to the amazingness of the, of the original. Ultimately, uh, I, I love what it's saying. I think it has a lot of, um, really strong themes, some, uh, some really, really great insight there, um, that I, I wish I could have gone on for more, but, um, would that be a different time for a different day? Um, but yeah, I think overall for me, uh, oh wait, no, I had one more point. Um, and then finally, it's 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 just too fucking long. It's, it's last time I watched it, and this time I watched it at an hour twenty minutes into the movie. I'm like, aren't we almost done? What is what is happening? And there, it's just yeah, I get really antsy at the end for the last hour, um, which is not a good sign. So ultimately, too long. Uh, I'm gonna also give this one two and a half bones. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Okay, Hellraiser. So based on our past conversations, I understand that I might be the dissenting voice of the three of us because I really like this movie. Uh, like, no, it's not as good as the original, but like, what is that? That's not fair. Uh, and this one is smart enough to do its own thing and instead of trying to adapt the plot, old plot, uh, it's not a remake. Uh, I like the revised puzzle box rules. Uh, they're really cool. I love all the different shapes and how to use the box to structure the story. Um, it makes a lot more of a meal of the box than the previous movies used to, uh, and I I I I, 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 I like the lore. Uh, it's more of a slasher film than the other Hellraiser movies usually are. Um, 
Although, of course, my favorite Hellraiser movie, aside from the original, is Hell on Earth, which is also kind of slashery. Um, and Hellworld is just straight up a slasher, so there's that one too. Uh, but I, I, I like I like slasher movies. I'm 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 fine with it. I like that. <laughs> um, the main girl is interesting. She isn't the most likable protagonist, but that's what I like about her. Uh, heroes don't need to be likable to be interesting, in my opinion. And the conflict with her and her brother is interesting and just so human. Um, I, I, I love all the conflict with him kicking her out of the house and blah, 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 blah. Uh, <clears throat> I like that she basically replaces one addiction with another, with the other one being the puzzle box and needing to solve it. She thinks she can get something out of it, that she's careful, she can avoid hurting others and mitigate the pain, but all the Cenobites have to offer is pain. It works. And of course, it's got practical effects. Thank Leviathan for practical effects in this day and age. The visuals are fun, really creative. It's a bit too clean. It's dark, also. Like, it's literally hard to see the Cenobites, that kind of dark. Uh, which I know, like, it's the old classicalism, I oh, it's scary if you can't see them, but I, I want to see the practical effects. I, I love practical effects. I love practical effects. <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy that this movie has practical effects. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> my initial review, which you can find on Letterboxd if you want, I'm DBJ Film, but I was initially, like, really, really overwhelmingly positive because I was just, I was so damn happy to see practical effects. Um... Biggest criticism is just that it's too long. Could have easily trimmed 15 to 30 minutes. But, you know what, whatever. Uh, most of that is character building, and I appreciate that they care about their characters. They're doing the legwork, and that helps, and we can see them as flawed humans and not just cannon fodder. Jamie Clayton is excellent, despite the sound design making it hard to understand. And I really hope they do more of these movies with her and with practical effects. Two and a half bones. Okay. Uh, so what do I think? So having just listened to David's review and your review, uh, who you both gave you the same score, by the way, I, I got to disagree. I think this is dog shit. I'm going to give it one bone. This is garbage. And I, I really hate it. Um, I, I want to give it less, but like there is some competence in it. Uh, sorry, Devin. I, I think it looks kind of bad. I think it's a bad looking movie. The monochrome colors take away from all the scares. Uh, the Cenobites are just cgi like if you see them out of costume and on screen they don't look scary um i really hate the art direction they went for that and because it's all drowned out in other blue or red like the gore doesn't even look good um they took away the entire thematic core that makes hellraiser hellraiser which is insane to me it's not scary it's fucking boring because it goes on for three hours it's it's really like two hours and some change which is way too long like why do we need to make a mystery when it's the 11th movie like get your shit together Sorry, I don't like Odessa. Um, she's probably good in other shit. I don't like the characters. Yeah, this movie sucks. It sucks so hard. And Hellraiser is one of my favorites. So I'm like personally offended. I don't think Dave Bruckner should be allowed to make another movie after this. Fuck him. Fuck his shit. Mic drop. Oh my gosh. Damn. Okay. Well, yep. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay. I love it when one of us has a very... uh uh heated passionate response to the film so i enjoy that 
I wish we'd done this like a week after I watched it because I was like, so angry for like a whole week. I know. And then everything <laughs> you're saying was like, oh, yeah, that wasn't my original feeling about the film afterwards. Like the Cenobite stuff. I was like, yeah, I was really mad that they weren't scary. I wasn't scared at all during this movie. It's supposed to be a horror movie. It's a drama. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember watching it being like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. I'll roll with it. It's going to get better. I was like, oh, it just kept getting worse. Like. None of it was cool. Like the gore wasn't good. Sounds like you're living a life uh, that that needs a little excitement and a little uh, exquisite pain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, give me the Lamont configuration. <laughs> I'll I'll ask for better horror movies. I I do kind of like the Evil Dead remake. It's uh like like it's not great, but it's cool. Definitely has like cool shit. Like when I think when I rewatch parts, I'm like, that's fucking cool. And I want that from a newer horror movie. If you're not going to give me like a compelling plotline or story or characters or whatever, then you better have some like good gore and spectacle. Yeah, just give me the blood rain, man. Like if you're not going to do anything, give me the blood rain. I saw pleasure, but all they have to give is pain.